Hello and welcome to the next instalment of MediaTel Conversations, a podcast brought to you by MediaTel. Our aim is to bring you the biggest names in the media industry to discuss the most important news topics of the day, as well as allow them to tell their story. This week, the editor-at-large for MediaTel News, Dominic Mills, interviews Sir Martin Sorrell, the executive chairman of S4 Capital, to discuss what COVID-19 means for the advertising industry and what the agency landscape might look like 12 months after lockdown. Martin, welcome. Dominic, good day, good day. Good day. So tell us, before we we get going, uh, where you are and how you're finding lockdown personally and professionally. Right. Well, I'm I'm in the centre of London. I've been here for this. I'm going into my sixth week. My last um, my last trip was to Stockholm for a Google event. I was forced to lock down. Our landlord um, cancelled the forms, blocked the forms on our entry to our office building. So oh. when I get back, I'm going to have his lordship for my rent back. But um, I'm in the centre of London. I'm close to Hyde Park, so it's. Um, I actually, to be to be honest, I, I found it sort of energising. Actually, I found it. Uh, I, I I dreaded the thought, but the uh, the execution has not been an execution. It's been actually quite good, and I found it very efficient. Uh, it's uh, it's quite wearying actually because you start at eight in the morning and go through till about eight or nine at night because we have heavy US presence. But uh, having said that, got through a lot of work without. All the nonsense of travelling and without all the lunches and breakfasts and dinners, which probably make you unfit and, and waste time. So working from home has not been a burden, actually. It's been, yeah. uh, but I'm fortunate because we're in and uh, you know, and live in a place close to the park as you do, and that's quite quite stimulating in its way. Let's go into we would be talking about COVID nineteen, but let's let's just talk about its. Um, uh, impact on the economy as a whole. After the 2008-9 crash, you talked about uh, L, U, and V and bathtub-shaped recessions. Yeah. Um, now I heard a new one uh, a couple of days ago: the square root recovery. Reverse, reverse square root. Yeah. Reverse square root. I beg your pardon. I'm not mathematically minded. <laughs> we might have to describe the square root side. Well, it's, it's sharp downward movement, to partial, to partial. Um, right. Yeah. Recovery. What not full. So, so reverse square is that your your kind of well, uh, view at the moment? Reverse square root. It's a game, isn't it? But mm. um, yes, I think I think that's. It depends on which vertical you're talking about. I mean, the the big game or the big payoff will come from forecasting accurately which verticals do better than others. Obviously, travel and hospitality will be a long yeah. time coming. Reading a circular on Disney by. Michael Nathanson, who I think is one of the best media analysts in America, and he was down on Disney. In fact, the stock reacted negatively yesterday and was talking about the impact on theme parks and cruises. And you have Disney Plus on the other side, but the effect on the the free-to-air as well and on ESPN as well. So I I think it's guessing or forecasting or betting on which verticals are going to do better. Clearly, pharma is doing better. CPG vary, but generally they're doing better the tech companies are doing better travel and hospitality as i said have been hit parts of retail offline retail online retail obviously is doing better you know you see hugo boss reported its numbers pretty bad uh, you know on the 
offline, but on the online sells up strongly. And we've seen that really across the board with online sales. So it's picking the sector. That will be, you know, for us, half of S4 Capital's revenues, which are running at about $400 million, come from tech. And yeah. that has been remarkably resilient, as you'll see on Thursday when we announce our results. That's been remarkably resilient in comparison to other sectors. So picking the sector will be, I think, absolutely key. Yeah. So some will be L's, some will be U's, some will be V's. Having said that, what I wanted to really say is this. I, I think we are underestimating the resiliency and, I would say, brilliance of Silicon Valley, Bangalore, San Paolo, Silicon Fen, wherever. These centers of excellence around digital and healthcare, biotech, life sciences, really are going to come into their own mm. even more than they did before. And yeah. two things, fiscal stimulus, monetary policy less so, fiscal stimulus has been huge. I was listening to some Goldman analysts describe how the amount of money going into the U.S. economy, and we obviously have to figure out how we're going to pay for it in future generations, is sufficient in their minds to balance the unemployment, you know, 30 million people being unemployed, because basically many American workers at lower and middle income are being subsidized to a very heavy degree. So we, we tended, I think, to underestimate the markets, haven't, but I think we tended to underestimate generally the power of the fiscal stimulus. Yeah. We haven't figured out the long term how to pay for it, which is going to be a big problem. You know, government is going to be a much bigger factor in the economy than we've been used to. I mean, the Thatcherite, Reagan-esque pushing down of the state, obviously that's going to be very different, but that's going to bolster it. So some of the some of the areas are going to be much more V-shaped than people think. China was the first in and early yeah. of COVID-19, yeah. and obviously S4 has a significant yeah. In China, what what have you seen there in terms of brand and media spend activity? And do you think that's a pattern that you know we can going to see in Europe and the US? It's dangerous to extrapolate China because you know China is unique and it's autocratic, and they clamp down. I mean, obviously there's a debate as to whether they clamp down soon enough, but it was ever thus because you doesn't make the same charge in the case of the UK or the US or others. But uh, you know, it's such an authoritarian regime. And, and I was looking, I, I think it's dangerous to extrapolate what happens in China. Now, we, we're seeing we have a small operation in China, but it's very vibrant, just voted uh, Asian production agency of, of the year, doing very well. A lot of, to your point, a lot of activity now. Now the office is back up and running and has been for a month or so. There's a frenetic amount of new business activity. But I would say the economy as a whole is about 80, 85, 90% yeah. up. I, I think China is a much more of a V, to use that analogy yeah. again, than we will see elsewhere. It'll be much more gentle on the upside of the yeah. V or maybe even U-shaped, depending on how you draw the curve in other economies. Western Europe, the US, I think will have more ripples it won't be yeah. W shut, it'll be more ripples. We'll have more alarms and excursions in Western Europe uh, and the US because it's not so such an authoritarian set of regimes. Episodic uh, in Western Europe and the US. Western Europe will be more difficult generally because economically, I think um, the two bookends of the Americas, that's North and South America, despite the troubles in South America and Brazil and other countries, Ecuador, 
uh, and the other bookend Asia Pacific, they will be where the the faster faster sense yeah. of recovery. And and you think media spend and and therefore advertiser activity will generally track these? Well, no. There's a disconnect. I mean, one of the reasons why the the holding companies have had such a tough time in the last four or five years is, you know, it used to be when you and I were younger, Dominic. There was a direct correlation between ad spend and agency fees yes. um, and GDP. That's broken. That that correlation seems to be uh, less relevant, to put it mildly, than it was before. So I think the holding. I mean, what we are seeing already. Even in the early weeks of the, the pandemic, it was a switch to digital. Like it or not, media consumption being up, whether online or offline because of the lockdown, what we've seen is a, a general fall in media spending and a switch to digital spending. Yes. So the trends that we've seen historically have accelerated as a result of COVID-19. So that correlation, so I, I don't think the media agencies or the holding companies or the creative agencies, however you want to describe them, will, at scale, will necessarily see a similar direct correlation. There will be yeah. a more muted correlation. The other thing, of course, is clients are going to put pressure on efficiency and effectiveness. I mean, cost, it's not of a ZBB, not of a zero-based budgeting yeah. kind, but efficiency and effectiveness yeah. Yes. It is, it's crucial. We've seen this, these unprecedented levels of media consumption, but also dramatic falls in ad revenues. ITV, I think, is going to report yeah. 55 or 60 percent down. The news brands are 25, 30 percent down. Outdoors being probably wiped out, cinema, so on. Do you think there's a Darwinian cull looming for media owners? And if so, what does that mean for advertisers? Yeah, I mean, the shifts. As I say, the shifts are operating at three levels. They're operating at the consumer level because, as you know, we've been locked down. So yeah. we're, we're communicating online like you and I are now. We're shopping online and we're educating online. I mean, maybe not as effectively or efficiently as we should do, but the technology will improve over time. The net effect of that, as far as the media is concerned, is to accelerate all the trends that we saw before. I mean, Bill Gates has talked about the compression of two years change within two weeks. Uh, you know, we're seeing that we're in, in, in two ways. One is newspapers and magazines will be exposed to, uh, and linear TV will be exposed to e even greater pressure. I'm not for one, one moment suggesting that linear TV will, will go down or be mm. able to put up much pressure as newspapers and magazines, particularly newspapers were. But that trend will accelerate and will accelerate, one, because consumers are spending more time online and two, because the streamers epitomized by Netflix. But, you know, you've also got Hulu and Roku with advertising driven. Models. Disney Plus. Yeah. Uh, Disney, yeah. Disney, Disney Plus, the most probably the most successful product launch that we've seen for many, many years is going to put intense, intense pressure on linear TV. And, you know, we've seen it. Even with you know eyeballs being glued to TV, uh, we've seen that in the early stages of this recession uh, that that clients are not prepared to put the money there. And I think you know the traditional response of the industry has been this spend, spend, spend mantra. Yeah. Uh, and then there was some substance to that that you know if you you didn't communicate, you wouldn't be seen or heard. But it's this is an existential threat. This is very different. This recession 
is not like the financial crisis. It's not like 9-11. It's not like the dot-com bust. It's not like 91, 90. 30 million people out of work in the US. Unemployment rates of 10 to 15 percent. I mean, this is huge. This is bigger than any recession we've ever seen. And in fact, as deep a recession as we've seen as a result of war. So it's very different. The traditional approaches are not going to work. Yeah. Do you think that this all this pressure on media owners is going to, you know, ultimately reduce advertiser choice about the options they have to show their wares, so to speak? I think people have always been worried about having too fragmented a landscape. So if there's consolidation, to some extent, that might make it a little bit easier. I mean, yeah. agencies are traded off complexity and use that as an argument yeah. for as you know for, for the reason that they should be simplification particularly in the digital area may not be a bad thing i mean the mixing of third party cookies um you know will have a number of effects i mean google's decision to phase out third party cookies within two years apple's decision immediately to do this is driving clients back to first party data and the signals of the the big platforms yeah. the big six like on Google, Facebook, Amazon, Alibaba, Tencent, and TikTok. I put that in the, the top six, if you like. And it's driving them back. And they're somewhat frustrated by that. But the side effects of that will be there will be less publishers, which I'm sure the platforms will be criticized for. But maybe, you know, we talk about Darwin and Culling, but maybe that is economically something that was going to happen. But probably slower before. And the second thing is that a lot of fraud in the ad system, the ad tech system will be eradicated because a lot of the, you know, I think Google's decision was driven, Apple's decision was driven, driven by privacy concerns. But you and I both know that one of the biggest issues, I mean, when I was trying to run WPP, one of the things that sort of mystified me slightly was the AMA attack uh, mm. on the industry four or five years ago which I think was uncalled for and was never really proven, but created this atmosphere of distrust, which I think had much more significant ramifications than I realized at the time. One of the reasons, for example, that IPG media brands, which, you know, you know, you look at it logically, it's a much smaller operation in relation to a WPP yeah. or a publicist yeah. or an Omicron. Yes, because I think they position themselves as a, a more transparent organization, more open source or whatever they called it. And whilst I probably, when I was at WPP, poo-pooed that, I think probably that did have or yeah. get some traction. Some traction. I mean, thinking then about media agencies and operating in this new climate where first-party data is more important, there are fewer media options out there for advertisers, you know, and we've talked about trust and transparency. I don't know whether you still think that is an ongoing issue. I think it really is. S4 on its media side, contents about 70% of our operation, 30% is in digital media planning and buying and data and analytics and programmatic. And we position that as totally open and transparent and meaningfully. So, I mean, we don't buy yeah. any inventory. I mean, it's totally transparent. And I think that is still an issue. I think there is still a lingering smell, if that's the right word. Uh, and probably unfairly, all the investigations, all the talk about FBI inquiries and whatever, don't seem to have got any momentum. But left a lingering, as I say, smell, which... Perhaps clients realised they were as much to blame, in a way, for creating those conditions. But, you know, what are the opportunities for media agencies at the moment? I think that's a very interesting point. I think a lot of the power 
in the agencies has shifted, but nobody really understands that the holding companies are driven by their media operations. I mean, the clout that WPP had, I don't know whether it's drill billings or still $50 billion a Group M or what, but you know, I think Publicis was about 35 and Omnicom about 30. That's where the powers, and when you think about it, Group M's 50 billion is bigger than Accenture. Accenture's yeah. around 45. So if you think about it from a billings point of view, there's a lot of power there. Now, whether that is important in the digital age or not is another question, because when you're buying media in a nanosecond, it's brain power that's important. The traditional area of Braum is important. So I think the balance of power within media has shifted from muscle to brain. And yeah. I think that's a very significant difference. I mean, if you think about personalities and you compare Erwin Gottlieb, who used to run Group M with Christian Jewell, you, you have essentially the difference. It's a yeah. very different, a very different character and personality. And I think that's the difference now. So you're saying scale is less important, but yes, not um, unimportant. No, it's not irrelevant, but yeah. it's much less important because what clients are looking for is nous, uh, intelligence, you know, particularly in the digital media planning and buying area, and particularly in the data analytics area. So what do media agencies need to be really, really good at to succeed? I think first thing is agility. The tech companies, the first generation tech companies are a little bit different because they are naturally more agile. They will become atrophied and sclerotic at some point in time, but they are naturally more. So agility is key. I mean, the bureaucracy inside the agencies, you know, it kills them, basically. And then the other thing, I think, is intelligence embodied in ROI. I mean, figuring out where we get the best return. You know, it's about measurement, obviously. It's about measuring sales impact. It's measuring the results mm. in an effective way. Those two things. So speed is yeah. one. And then second is understanding intelligently the implications, the results, the business results yeah. of what you do. Let's talk about client in-housing, particularly in the yeah. media. We've seen, you know, seen a lot of talk of it. I've never quite got to the bottom of how much that actually happened. And you could say that we've seen the advantage of client in-housing, which is agility and flexibility, but also the disadvantage, which is that they're stuck with a cost during this COVID-19 period. Um, do you think the, the post COVID-19, the trend is going to continue or is it going to slow or reverse? What do, what do you think is going to happen on in-housing? I think it's going to accelerate. And, and, you know, all the data, the polls by the ANA, the polls by the IIB, the polls by Digiday, whatever it happens to be, all those polls indicate significant client interest in examining. And it's not just on the media side, it's on the content side. And the reasons are very deep. The first goes back to 2008 and the trend after 2008 to ZBB, zero-based budget. And that's now gone out of fashion. I mean, cost is still important and efficiency is still important. But in a, a close to zero growth world, you know, when, which we were pre-COVID, no inflation, no pricing power, no focus on cost. Therefore, cost was very, very important. But around right about 2016, the walls in the wall garden suddenly got bigger. The, the, the platform said, because of privacy or brand safety or interference in elections, we're not going to give you the data you thought you were going to get. And there were a lot of tassels between the platforms and our clients for control of the data. This is why third-party cookie mixing has had such a serious impact. 
And that was a warning sign to the clients that unless they invested in their marketing infrastructure, unless they reduced the cost cutback, they would be lost. So they're taking back control, Dominic. This is an eerie sort of similar situation to Brexit, where the, when the voter took back control from Brussels. Marketeers are taking back control of the process. In a 24-7 world, they have to do it. They have no choice. Yeah. It's an iterative model. Gone are the days where you said, you know, three months to produce a film and pump it out. The, the problems change so quickly and the, the drumbeat is incessant. It's like, a, it's like a political election, but with no election yeah. date. You get yeah. messages coming in and yeah. coming at you and sending out messages all the time. You have to adjust all the time. It's an iterative process. In that environment, it's a totally different model, which the client has to have more resources. So he or she will need more control of digital yeah. content, first-party data, digital content, and programmatic. And the best model, you know, at the moment, I think Procter is really interesting in terms of what it's doing. The world's biggest advertiser, yeah. maybe Amazon now, that one-off. And Mark Pritchard and Procter are, it's a first-party data-driven model, 1.2, 1.3 billion consumers driving the development of digital content, now primarily really, and pumping it out programmatically. The other thing is, you know, I, I've already heard from clients, they are really frustrated by the third-party cookie situation. Yeah. And, you know, they were developing their first-party data with third-party sources that helped them develop databases. The interest in data and analytics is driven... You know, a lot of it is pretty basic. It's data hygiene. It's figuring out compatibility of data sets, continuity of data sets, efficiency of data sets. It's not sort of uh, esoteric stuff. This is basic. And this is the beginnings, I think, of setting up a system inside. And, you know, you're right about the cost. They will be concerned about the cost. And the CFOs will be. But this need to understand what's happening. When the internet came along, we all thought... Ah, our clients are going to have more control over the relationship between them and you and me. The, the old retailers, you know, Walmart, Tesco, Carrefour, and they're adapting too, but they have been replaced, not by a direct relationship, but by the new e-tailers, you know, Amazon and eBay yeah. and PayPal yeah. and, and, and Google and Facebook have become, in a way, the controllers of the relationship. And that's the battle. That's the yeah. battleground. It's a battle for control of the data. And you see it all the time. Why does Unilever buy Dollar Shave Club? Why does Coca-Cola buy Costa? Why does Nestle buy Starbucks? To uh, get closer to, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You said in the past that the PSM5 or the six platforms should be classified as publishers <laughs> and therefore regulated accordingly. <laughs> I mean, is that going to happen anytime soon? <laughs> I've changed my spots on that. I mean, with S4, we've seen, you know, there are 16 companies, the six I've mentioned, plus Apple and Microsoft, plus Oracle and Salesforce and Adobe, IBM, Salesforce, and mentioned by Dance through TikTok, uh, Twitter, Snap, and Baidu. Those 16 companies, you could add maybe um, Pinterest and you add Samsung. But those 18 companies, that's an ecosystem that we have to understand with them, which we effectively we, we partner in one way or another uh, at S4. Understanding those companies is absolutely critical. 
One of the one of the results of COVID nineteen, I'm totally convinced, is that the strong will get stronger. So the big six plus Apple, plus Microsoft, plus the three software companies will become even more dominant. And one of the things that's happened in COVID-19 is people have seen, consumers have seen, governments have seen, society has seen the good that they do. I mean, there's been this focus pre-COVID on the bad, but look, you know, Amazon are now what, recruiting 175,000 workers. Google and Apple are working on a tracking app. I mean, the, the good that technology has brought yeah has sort of outweighed, at least in the short term, the bad of bigness. By the way, look, once you cross a trillion dollars, which four or five of them have, and once you look as though you might cross two trillion dollars, Lloyd Blankfein, ex-CEO of Goldman Sachs, I think was said, was asked, you know, companies have gone to one trillion, what happens when one crosses two trillion? He said, no nation state would ever let a company get to two trillion. Now, whether that's true or not, we're about to see, but I think Apple's, um, Amazon's around 1.4. I think Saudi Aramco got to two trillion after their IPO. Briefly, but briefly. <laughs> when, when, when Amazon, yes, yeah, briefly, when Amazon gets to two trillion, which it has a very good shot of doing, that question is going to be raised again. I mean, I think Jeff Bezos has been summoned to another congressional inquiry, but I don't think I don't think it will be as virulent as been at least in the short to medium term. The other thing is, these companies understand that with power comes responsibility, and I and I do think they're exercising more restraint in certain areas as a result. But the momentum to regulate them might dissipate. Well, I think, you know, the regulators and the government have other fish to fry at yeah. the moment. And a very interesting case in the UK, you know, Amazon's minority investment in Deliveroo, which in normal times probably wouldn't have got through, got through. Because I think yeah. you know, the regulators are worried about other things at the moment. And, yeah. and by the way, you know, the culling of small business will have a negative effect on, on the platform. You know, Google and Facebook will suffer by virtue of that 60% of the revenues, whatever it is, come from small business, and a lot of small businesses will fail. And in addition, the big companies who are well-resourced with strong balance sheets will have a big opportunity to pick up some, some small companies. Yeah. And that might trigger, when things quieten down, if they ever do, more concern about the, the scale yeah. of these companies. I'm going back to thinking about them in the context of advertising and marketing, I mean, you know, you talked about the walled gardens getting higher. When it comes to third-party measurement and transparency, you said they're marking their own homework, uh, you know, and advertisers have, have, have said the same, but they're seemingly impervious to this kind of challenge. Well, that's our opportunity. I mean, you know, we position ourselves as far as being able to sort that out, to evaluate in, independently um, where where client budgets between those 16 or 18 companies, where should they distribute their funds between platforms, hardware companies, software companies? And that's the role yeah. that, you know, whether the, whether the environment has become more complex or less complex, going back to what we said a few minutes ago, the role of the agency will be important in that. That's why the data and analytics part of our, our practice is growing so fast, it's literally exploding in terms of the, the interest in that area. That is that is huge. Are you suggesting that in some ways, simplified in some ways, in that there are fewer players in it, but yes. more complicated and those players are more powerful and, uh, you know, their tentacles and, stretch wider? And therefore, 
independent assessment becomes, I think, probably more important. The complexity probably will get less, unless we see a rash of alternatives. I mean, TikTok is really interesting because it's the only one that's broken through, really. It's got to about 7 billion of revenue. Amazon's at about 20 billion of revenue. Facebook, 60 plus. Google, 160 plus. The whole shebang is about 250. So very dominated by three, those three platforms. The, the only one, you know, Snap, Twitter, and Pinterest are, um, are smaller in comparison. And therefore, TikTok has done an incredible job in a short period of time. And it's the only one that really has broken through. Now, there may be others that come through that, that make the whole, the whole environment much more complex. But generally, I think we'll focus on these bigger. The strong will get stronger, inevitably. But if they're stronger, they'll con continue to be able to resist the pressure for third-party measurement, won't they? The cookie thing is really interesting in that context because the trade desk has carved out, you know, a position for itself as an alternative, you know, to DoubleClick and, and Google. And in fact, certain clients, you know, gravitate towards the trade desk because it does provide an alternative. The question, and I think trade desk has said only 20% of its revenues will be affected by the nixing of third-party cookies. We'll see. I, I think it's a little bit more fundamental than that. We'll see. I mean, TradeDesk has done an incredible job uh, uh, in building uh, an alternative uh, approach. Uh, but we'll have to see whether that gains traction. So I think inevitably you will see uh, a narrowing of the competitive framework, which to some extent will be good news. But the, the plus point from an agency point of view is it makes us more important in evaluating the differences. Is Amazon a frenemy? I think the answer to that is yes. You know, I think clients have always been frightened of Amazon. And this goes back, this is not nothing new. This is not because their sales were up another 25% in the last quarter. This is, this is, and their ad revenues are running at a rate of 15 to $20 billion a year. This has been so you know, that phrase uh, that Jeff Bezos coined, well, supposed to have coined, apocryphal, you know, your margin, my opportunity, or as an ex-CMO put it to me of a major package goods, you know, uh, if Amazon is not copying your business model, it's because you don't have one. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think, uh, or have a good one. I think, you know, that's the tension. I mean, I can think of one client who went out and did a deal in order to get more traction with Amazon from a data point of view, data, they negotiated with Amazon for 18 months on the data agreement, got it agreed, went on the platform, Amazon didn't keep to the arrangements, they went out and bought another brand that made it impossible for Amazon to operate really without bringing them on the platform, you know, and yeah. modifying their data yeah. restriction. That battle for data, you know, just think what data Amazon has got in the last five or six weeks. <laughs> incredible, yeah. incredible. <laughs> And TikTok, yeah. Yeah. and Google, and Facebook, Ooh. and the power they will have is huge. And you know, Amazon Premium Gin, the co the competitor to Allbird Shoes, Lady Gaga Cosmetics. I mean, these those are three things that I can think of that Amazon have done quotes in private label. Amazon sees what's selling. They know what the gross margins are approximately. Yeah. I mean, it's manna for heaven to them. So inevitably, there's this caution between this tension between do I go through Amazon to get the volume and then at the same time put myself 
Right. And no mercy. I mean, yeah. that's the ten. So what you do is you do what Nespresso does. You know, you have your bricks stores where you, know, you and I are buying the capsules, and so they get the data, the first party data that way. And then online on on Nespresso.com yeah. through Amazon, they, they see they get the data from that way. Or Christian deal with perfume stores in China, two hundred stores in China. They you know they get the data from their customers as they come into the stores, and they get their from deal.com. So I think there's some really interesting strategies that clients can pursue. And it comes back to the Unilever Dollar Shave Club yeah. uh, and Nespresso. And, and the other example would be Coca-Cola and Costa. Yeah. You talked about COVID-19 as an existential crisis in yeah. not quite the same way. People talk about advertising in the wider sense, going through a crisis of public trust, loss of public trust. Some of the causes, uh, you know, which you can see from surveys, have their roots in digital media. You know, you talk about and a Wild West trading environment. So you're talking about you know, ad stuffing. You're talking about load times. You're talking about data intrusion, intrusiveness generally, no frequency capping or anything like bombardment and so on. Those are what you might call media sins. Are you optimistic that post-lockdown, the industry will get it together on tackling these issues? Or actually, is it just kind of sliding away, this trust? Well, it's, it's difficult. Yes. I, I, you know, we, it, these issues have been around for a significant period of time, and we don't seem to have done too much about them. Having said that, you know, I, if I look at it from an S4 point of view, where we're just focused on the digital piece, and we're trying to refine uh, the data that we have. We're, firstly, we're trying to make sure that consumers do understand what they're letting themselves in for. You know, when you, you sign up on a website, you accept or you decline, you know what you're letting yourself in for. That's the key thing. So that you and I know that our data is being used in this way or that way. Or if we want to sell it, you know, the example of the guy sitting on a bus who earns his bus fare as he goes into the office by selling his data. I mean, it, Making the consumer aware and giving the consumer a choice is absolutely critical. But then we're trying to refine the data that we have, the first party data and from other sources. We're trying to use that data to produce relevant, contextualized content. And then we're trying to distribute it in the most effective way. The Netflix model, which I think is the best model which you know, attempt, you know, looks at Dominic Mills and says that this is, we don't know it's you, but we know, yeah. you know a little about you in terms of your purchasing habits, and what products and services you like, what media you like, what you've you know, you looked at, and then we try and contextualize the message we sent. I think that, refining that over time is the answer to the, the problem. And that will make what we do much more relevant uh, at an emotional level or at a tactical level. And I think that will be more and more effective. So I think what we have to do is to use the resources that we have in a more effective way. And I think that will happen in time. I think this crisis is going to, like it or not, is going to slim down the industry. It's going to make it, you know, it's going to take it down. It's, it's a terrible analogy, I know, but it's like severely pruning a tree and new shoots will grow. And I think really, you know, when we communicate with our people in our company, you know, we say 
Q2 is going to be difficult. We're going through Q, we've gone through, you know, one month of Q2. It is going to be very difficult, but Q3 will get better relatively. Mm. Q4 will get better relatively. And 2021 will be better re relatively. It will be nasty. This virus is a very nasty disease, which has already killed a quarter of a million people. Um, just to get it in perspective, I remember when this started, I looked at the statistics. Um, you know, HIV killed 36 million people. The flu epidemic, SARS, whatever, cost uh, Asian flu, killed one to two million people. You have to get it in perspective. Yeah. What this has happened, what's happened here is the impact, obviously, economic impact of the lockdowns, which makes it more akin to a wartime situation. And I do think, for understand, I'm not, don't get me wrong, one death. Is more than enough, like 250,000. Yeah, but I do think because we were so unprepared, now nobody at Davos, it wasn't the subject. You know, at the end of January, there were two sessions at Davos apparently on on epidemics or pandemics. Nobody saw it coming. We were surprised. Business was surprised. Governments were surprised. Nation states were surprised. Everybody was surprised. So the reaction was always going to be more, quite rightly, because people, you know we knew, you know, just look at the UK government. They knew early on, I am sure, and when the government, when the Royal Commission reports on this, it'll, I'm sure it'll come out. They knew that potentially, if you extrapolated the Chinese death rates, mortality rates, you could have three hundred thousand to five hundred thousand. Yeah will die in this country. And yet we went down what I would call the herd immunity. Until yeah, yeah. somebody popped into Cobra and said, look, I've got a model which says we could be 200,000 dead. And suddenly the policy was reversed. I mean, I, whatever happens, we have to, we have to look at that and, that and explain. It didn't change. We went to lockdown. Let's hope the Royal Commission reports before 2030 or whatever. They, they don't move. Well, that, very fast. That's the problem. That's the problem with the political process. No agility. Yeah. <laughs> Sclerotic. We're coming to the end of our time, Martin. Yeah. So let, let me just, just ask you, you know, are you talking yourself or are you talking us into finding reasons to be optimistic about the kind of medium term future for the advertising industry once we get through this? Well, we have to be, as everybody knows, to be in our industry, you have to be optimistic. You can't be pessimistic. I mean, you know, our, our industry, you know, winning and losing business is such that if you if you yeah. were pessimistic about life, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go to work. Yeah. So, and I think, you know, it's our responsibility to, to show people where there is, you know, a way through. So I think what you have to do is you have to call it as it is, which is that Q2, what we're going through now is horrendous. I've described it, described it as a bloodbath, a dominant cull, whatever you want to call it. It is a terrible situation, and not just for our industry, but for the, the whole country, in fact, for everybody around the world. Having said that, there are opportunities that will arise. And for us, we're blessed that half of our industry now is digital and over the coming years it's going to get even more so so maybe in five mm. years time will um, be two seventy percent that's the opportunity 
So, uh, and I am talking my own book in relation to S4, I know, but, you know, the way we positioned around purely digital, uh, around this holy trinity of data, of content, and of programmatic, faster, better, cheaper is being our mantra, or speed, quality, value, and a unitary structure, you know, bringing everybody together to serve our clients in, in one year. I think that is the future. So if you think about it in those dimensions, you know, we are S4, the 2,500 people we have in 30 countries are well positioned. It is an optimistic message. As, as yeah. the sun kisses the side of your head, it's an optimistic well, It is, message. it is. <laughs> and it's warm out. If you could only have two of faster, better, cheaper, which would they be? I'd have all three. <laughs> <laughs> That's, Martin, that is the magic, that's the magic money tree equivalent. <laughs> okay, so we've got reasons to be optimistic. Martin, thank yeah, you very much for your you. time. It's been a great pleasure, as always, to have this kind of tour of the world uh, with many perspectives thrown in. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Make sure to subscribe for all future episodes as we deliver more MediaTel Conversations.